0: Amen, amen. We're gonna have a seat and a good morning, welcome. Uh, get your Bibles out and uh, turn to John or John <laughs> Daniel. I don't even know where that came from, John. <laughs> Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Boy, that's a rough intro. Um, and as you're turning, let me first uh, just start by saying, first of all, a couple things with respect to yesterday and the tea. Uh, first of all, praise God. All right, praise God uh, for his kindness and his work and just a number of women that were here, uh, certainly from the church, but also women who aren't part of the church, who don't know Jesus uh, and just thought that that was absolutely fantastic. We want to we praise God for that. But then I also want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to all of you who worked, who served, who, who baked, cooked, um, who moved tables, chairs, vacuumed, uh, served. I mean, it was just awesome, awesome, awesome uh, to see the number of people serving in the way that they did. And so thank you uh, for doing that. And uh, if, yeah, that's, I think that's great. I, I would just say this. Well done, church. Well done. Uh, You did a great job. And so uh, be commended and excited about that. All right, now as we turn our attention to Daniel, not John, but Daniel uh, chapter 11 and 12. If you remember last week, uh, I made the argument or started the sermon by arguing that that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 was the final episode in the book of Daniel. And that last week was really the first half of the sermon. And and so uh, moving into this week, where last week what we saw of Daniel was Daniel sees the sermon, although he didn't get any of the content or sees the message and the vision, but didn't get any of the content uh, of the vision or the message, at least not what we looked at, but that he was just undone by this and he was weak and he had no strength left in him. And yet today, as we look at Daniel 11 and 12, we see the actual content of this vision that came to him. But we see how these two, uh, the, the, chapter 10 and then chapters 11 and 12 are tied to each other in that as God is strengthening Daniel, part of how God is strengthening him is the hope that he offers to him and to the people of God through this vision. And so, with that kind of as a, as a framework, let me just begin to move us to start thinking around and about God's Word and what God's Word has for us this morning by asking you a couple of different questions. So, here's the first one, loved ones. What is it? What is it in your life that you are hoping in? And think about that for a moment. What's that source of security? What's that anchor? That's going to keep you from drifting or being taken out to see. What is it that's going to hold you fast? What are you hoping in? As you think about that, let me ask you a second question. When you think about your future, does it excite you? Does it scare you? Does it bore you? Like, what is it that goes on inside of you as you think about your future? And then finally, here's the third question. When you think about the end of your life, what goes on inside of you? You might be sitting here going, where are you going with all this? Well, I'm moving to a very intentional, deliberate place. See, I would argue that most of us, most of us as people, tend to be people who will live in the moment. We live in the present, we live in the here and now. And that's not all bad, it's not all wrong, But we really struggle to be people who are looking ahead and seeing ahead. And we really struggle to put the two of those entities together. To be present, to live in this moment, but to understand the future and eternity and what it holds for us. And so we really struggle to live life in the moment today, understanding what is already fixed with respect to eternity. And a lot of times, not only do we struggle to do that, we'll just disconnect the two entities in its entirety. And so I'll be present and ignore the future, or I'll want to live in the future, but ignore the present. And what I would argue is that I think a lot of that in us is driven by fear. I think it's just a fear, a fear of unknown, a fear of what's ahead, a fear of, of, of just what's in front of me. And so may, maybe for some of you, you're just, you're afraid to grow up. And that's not just to the young people in the room, right? Some of you older people need to, you're like, yeah, I'm just afraid uh, to grow up. Maybe you're afraid of getting old or getting older, uh, depending on where you find yourself. Maybe you're afraid of your kids growing up. Maybe you're afraid of your grandkids growing up. Maybe you're just afraid because I don't know what's out there. Or maybe if you're just honest, you go, you know, when I just look out there far enough, I see death and that terrifies me. Why is there this fear that disconnects the present from the future? Here's what I think. And I think this is what God's word is going to point us to. I think we fear these things because we have a flawed view of of our current or the present. And more importantly, we have a flawed view of the resurrection and eternity. See, because I think what goes on inside of us is we begin to think, we begin to believe that the here and now, that the present is better than it actually is and that eternity won't be as great as it actually will be. And so it results in us living this life that has a misplaced emphasis on the here and now and on the present and and there's this diminished hope for eternity in the future. And, And oddly enough, what happens is in that we both miss out on what God has for us today, but it also fails to, to 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 undermine what God has for us in the future, because because we're living in this misplaced hope. And so, if you find yourself, or have ever found yourself, in a place where the 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 future scares you or you're uncertain about it or you're apprehensive about it. Um, or if you even think back to that first question of what are you hoping in? You're like, you know, I, I don't really know what I'm hoping in. Or maybe you're sitting here and just really honest you're, and you're saying, I actually know what I'm hoping in. And the problem is it's not Jesus. If any of those and a host of other things are true of you, then Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 become really, really helpful for us because they will become a corrective for us. And so as we look at this, here's what I think God's word is going to lead us towards. Here's uh, the main idea of the text. Is that we put our hope in God and his kingdom, the resurrection and the final rest that is found in Christ. We put our hope in God and his kingdom, the resurrection and the final rest that is found in Christ. Now, Now, if you wanted to simplify that, you would just say, put your hope in God. But these other aspects that are mentioned here are aspects that we're going to see coming right out of the text and speaking right into our lives. So before we go any further, I'm not going to read the entirety of the text because of the volume of it, but we will engage different aspects of it. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to open our eyes, to see our ears, to hear our hearts, to know and understand all that he would have with us or for us. And so why don't you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, as we come before you, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see. God, that we would see the truth of what your your word is presenting to us. God, that that we would see what you would have for us. Uh, God, as you speak to Daniel and the people of God in Daniel, that you would speak your truth into our lives as well. God, that we would be quick to hear. God, that you would expose maybe areas that we've put our hope in something else, in someone else. And maybe your word is going to expose that. Maybe you're going to root out an idol in our life. Maybe you're going to root out ways in which we're shielding ourselves from you. And so whether it be conviction or challenge or um, illumination or whatever it is, we pray that you would have your way with us, that you would have the freedom to do your work in and amongst your people. But God, not only for us, As always, we want to pray for another church in the area. And this morning we pray uh, for Pastor Jeremy Hickman and for Vertical Church. God, we pray for that group of believers, that you would have your hand upon them, that you would be honored and glorified in them. God, that you would be uh, having the freedom to work and to move and to do what only you can do within their midst. In the same way that we would ask you to do that and to make that true amongst us. And so God, come and guide us, come and lead us, come and have your way with us now. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this all in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Hoping in a Future Kingdom. Hoping in a Future Kingdom. And, and this morning will be a little bit different in how we approach the text. As I've already mentioned, I'm not going to read it here at the outset, part of that being uh, the volume of the text that we're looking at. But typically on a Sunday morning, at least the way that I like to think of it and the approach that we take, is that when we come to the text, we, we want to move through the terrain of the text. And so what we mean by that is imagine if you were to go for a hike. And if you were to get on La Luce or you would go up to Placida's or Wherever it is, and you get on a trail, as you hike along those ridges, as the terrain moves up or down, you move with it. And so, as you move through the text, we move with it. And that's common uh, in our practice typically on a Sunday morning. We want to move through uh, the the terrain and the ebb and flow of the text. And yet, this morning, I would propose that we do something a little bit different because of the nature of our text. And instead of going for a hike, I would invite you to come with me uh, onto an airplane. And so, we're going to ascend to 30 or 35,000 feet. instead of hiking uh, amongst the terrain of the the uh, the text we're going to look at it from up high and we're going to get this this broad scope this large scope of what's unfolding here in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 and so we won't see some of the nooks and crannies of the text but imagine for a moment that, uh, right, we're not on some commuter airplane where we've got these tiny little windows on the side, but we're sitting up front in a cockpit, right? We have those big windows and you can see everything in front of you. And just imagine for a moment that as you look out onto the landscape that you see a couple of distinct and prominent geographic features. In fact, imagine, first of all, that you see A mountain isn't hard for us to imagine, right, with the Sandias, and so maybe those are the mountains, maybe you see another mountain, but you see that mountain, and then coming out of that mountain, you see a river that starts in the mountain, but moves into the valley and into the plain, and works its way, ultimately, off into the horizon, off into the distance into a lake, or if you want to be on the coast, it can work its way into the ocean. And you have these three features that are all very much distinct from each other, but they're all interconnected, and they're tied to each other. And I think that's what we see here in Daniel 11 and 12. In fact, let me give you the three features right up front. Here they are. It's kingdom, namely God's kingdom. It's the resurrection and it's rest. These are the three features, three distinct features that show up here in these final two chapters of Daniel 11 and 12. That we're going to get up and we want to see both each of them in their own right, but then how they interact and how they play together with one another with uh, respect to uh, God's word. So here we go. Here's the first thing, starting with this idea of mountain, or if you will, that, that image or that feature of mountain. And I've tied that to God's kingdom. It's more specifically that we put our hope in God's kingdom. Now, I don't know if it's a regular practice of yours or not, that before you show up to church, you read the scriptures uh, that are gonna be, that we're going to be preaching on. If that is your practice, let me just affirm you, that's a good thing. If that's not your practice, let me exhort you and encourage you, that would be a good thing to make one of your practices. And that's really part of the value of expositional preaching, is you know what's coming next. It's what's next, uh, in the sermon series. And so, so if you've read ahead, uh, you know that chapter 11, if we're just honest, is kind of weird and it's a little bit odd Uh, and you probably read it. And even if you read it multiple times, you're still probably somewhat confused by some of the different things that are going on in the chapter. I'll uh, own my part in this that I'm still a little bit confused about some of the things that are going on in uh, the chapter. But let me try to break it down and just kind of broadly explain some broad strokes of what uh, seems to be happening here in chapter 11. First of all, in the first four verses, uh, we we have a very clear uh, statement of some kingdoms. And those kingdoms are the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks. And it certainly seems like he's talking about Alexander the Great once again at the end uh, of verse uh, 4 or in verse 4. And then from verses 5 through 20, there's this really interesting thing, this language that Daniel starts to use or that the messenger is using. And he's talking about king of the north, king of the south. And you start to read it, and at first it's like, okay, I can kind of track with this. But then it seems like it's different people, but they're given the same name. And and it gets more and more confusing because there's these alliances and partnerships. And it's like, wait, I thought they defeated this person. And I think what's most likely happening here is you have what apocalyptic literature will do, where it will fold itself upon itself. So think of like an accordion where it just multiple points or multiple folds on the same point. And so this designation of king of the south, king of the north is probably referring to a multitude of different leaders. And then in verse 21, we're introduced to a specific leader. In his place, let me, I'm going to read verse 21 here. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flattery. So there's this contemptible individual who's going to rise to power. And starting in verse 21, through the end of the chapter, you get 25 verses that that detail really in horrific fashion what this leader is going to do and how this leader is going to lead. Let me just give you a few examples of, of what the text says. Verse 22, "'Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant.'" Verse 23, "'He shall act deceitfully.'" Verse 27, "'As for the two kings, their heart shall be bent on doing evil.'" Verse 28, "'His heart shall be set against the holy covenant.'" Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. Now we've heard about that before, right? And we know that Antiochus Epiphanes did that. In fact, I think that's who he's talking about here once again. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble. And notice how they're going to stumble. By sword and flame, by captivity and and plunder. Uh, Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries. Verse 44, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Not interested in living under this leader. This is a wicked individual. When you read this, I mean, is it any wonder that Daniel had no strength upon hearing and seeing this vision? Right? One is coming who's going to obliterate the people of God. Now as you look at chapter 11, what we see in chapter 11, there's no shortage of kings and kingdoms that are referenced in chapter 11. Some are utterly terrifying, some not as much, but make note of this. All of them, all of them, all of them have an end point. None of these kingdoms are still around. They have all run their course. And what the book of Daniel has done over and over and over again is hammered home the distinction between God's kingdom and all other kingdoms. That God's kingdom stands in stark contrast to all these other kingdoms. I mean, think about all the rulers that we've seen come and go just in the book of Daniel. There's Nebuchadnezzar, there's Belshazzar, there's Darius, there's Cyrus, there's all these others that are prophesied about uh, currently or or future that... that, um, We see in the second half of the book, right, the kingdoms rise and they fall. They come and they go. But God's kingdom, it's established, it's eternal, it's permanent, it's fixed. So we put our hope in God's kingdom. Two things specific to that that might help us put some handles on how or why we put our hope in God's kingdom. Here's the first. Make note of this, that we must think rightly about God's kingdom. But we've got to think rightly about God's kingdom. And really, by extension and application, we've got to think rightly about all the other kingdoms as well. Because these kingdoms, like every other kingdom that has ever existed on the earth, as far as today is concerned, they offer nothing of substance to hold on to. There's no permanence to them. Today, they are literally in ruins. So Becky and I, we have family that lives in the Middle East. In fact, they live in this same region where the book of Daniel unfolded in what was uh, at that time Babylon, uh, present-day Iraq. And so they live in that area. And I remember when they first moved over there, they would send us pictures. I'd mean, like, hey, this was Nebuchadnezzar's this, or this is part of that. Or remember in Daniel, th- 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 we think that this is part of this. And of course, the, just that nerd in me loved that because it was just so cool. I'm just a nerd. Your pastor's a nerd. I know you know that, but I'll just affirm that, okay? And so I loved that part of it. But then there was a part of me where I would just look at those pictures and go, it's a pile of rocks. I mean, literally, it's like a handful of bricks, and it wasn't lost on me that they, that they really represented a dead, lifeless, hopeless kingdom. And as you think about that, I want you to think about this. That you and I live in a kingdom today as well. And the kingdom that you and I live in, there will be a day, or it too will just be a pile of rocks or a pile of bricks. Or in our situation, it will be a pile of stucco. Okay? <laughs> but it will be reduced to rubble. See, this isn't really all that far of a cry of your life and of mine. In fact, it's quite similar to us. Maybe the one difference is where the people of God in Daniel 11 and 12 find life to be really hard. In our situation, we're actually oftentimes the recipients of great blessings and benefit. We live in the prosperity and and the wealth of, of the richest kingdom that's ever existed. From a global perspective, you and I are some of the richest people that will ever walk the face of the planet. You might not feel like it, that's the facts. And yet, if we're really honest about our kingdom, it still feels pretty empty, doesn't it? I mean, it just doesn't have that lasting power. It's, it's, it's so fleeting. I mean, there's a reason we call this thing a rat race, right? And as Dan Cooksey rightly pointed out to me, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. So I'm not really sure you want to win the rat race. Because the things that are new today, what happens? They're all tomorrow. And they break down and they fall apart. And yet, right, allegedly, you and I live in a place that this is as good as it gets. So can we just take an honest evaluation for a moment? Right, we want to think rightly about God's kingdom and other kingdoms. Let's think about ours for a moment here. Here's an honest perspective of the realities. And if I can be so blunt, the horrors of our kingdom. Today, as is true of any other day in our country, and has been true for the last number of decades, 2,700 abortions will take place every single day. Last year, over 17,000 murder and manslaughter cases were entered into the judicial system. We have mass shootings and mass killings that have become so common that, that more often than not we're, we're inoculated and immune to them. And instead of mourning and grieving and being utterly broken over what's unfolding, oftentimes we just use it as a form to politicize it to push whatever agenda we're pushing. Our political system's a joke and it's a laughing stock. On top of the fact that some of the most um, profane things that we do is that we will traffic and exploit people, oftentimes those people being children, to fulfill our, our, our lustful and sinful desires. Maybe most evidenced in the explosion of the pornography industry. Hey, you ready for this? You know how much money the pornography, the pornography industry is going to make this year? You know what it's worth? 96 billion with a B dollars for reference sake the NFL the national football league will do somewhere between 8 to 12 billion dollars in a given year so i mean it's getting blown out of the water we're addicted to all kinds of things drugs porn screens pain meds anything and everything and, and and none of these things even begin to speak to the host of the other effects of the fall of sickness and disease and cancer and death is this really as good as it's going to get i hope not cuz i mean i could put another 50 stats on there Is this really going to be the thing that you're going to put your hope in? Is this what what confidence could we possibly have that this for all of time could sustain us and uphold us? Because the reality is is if we're just going to be honest about our kingdom, it's bleak. Just like Daniel eleven. And just like Daniel eleven, not only is our situation bleak, but there's a future hope. Because there's a future king. Who rules a perfect kingdom. And yet, far too often, will pass on that to hold on to the ridiculousness that I just described. See, we we, we got to be honest. we got to be honest about the little kingdoms in our lives and God's glorious kingdom that's going to run for all of eternity. Because if we're not careful, loved ones, if we're not careful... We will invest the entirety of our lives into this broken, cheap, uh, dysfunctional kingdom of today. At the expense of God's kingdom. And if the book of Daniel has taught us anything, it is the futility of worldly kingdoms. Loved one, put your hope in God's kingdom. We must think rightly about God's kingdom. Secondly, make note of this. Not only should we put our hope in God's kingdom, but really maybe teaching us how we do that, is we must live in, in anticipation of God's kingdom. And so let me just show you a couple of verses here. Jump down to verse 32 in chapter 11. And I want you to notice how the people of God respond. This is in the middle of this contemptible person and his rule. And notice how God's people anticipate God's kingdom. Verse 32, "...he, this contemptible leader, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant." But the people who know their God, and then he's going to tell us two things that they're going to do, shall stand firm and take action. And he begins to unpack that for us here in these next couple of verses. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder when they stumble they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may become refined purified and made white so he's talking about this purifying work amidst suffering that God is doing amongst his people until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time we must live in anticipation of God's kingdom two things right we see it at the end of verse 32 one is that we stand firm we stand firm in what? Well, in the Lord. More specifically, based on what he's saying here, in conduct and character and perseverance. I mean, things don't go well for the people of God in verse 33 and 34, do they not? Look what he says, though. for some days they shall stumble, they shall fall. How are they going to stumble or fall? Right? They're not tripping over a rock. He gives four things, by sword, by flame, captivity and plunder. Through execution, through being burned, By being imprisoned and being looted. know about you? That's not exactly a word of hope. Like, oh man, I wish we could get that word. It's a call to persevere. That temporary suffering is worth eternal glory. This is actually what the author of Hebrews tells us about Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, he says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, he knew something better, something greater was to come. Love one, do you know that something better, something greater is to come? If you are a follower of Jesus, hear this exhortation. Stand firm. Stand firm, loved ones. Secondly, he says this. Take action. Okay, well, that's pretty broad. I mean, that could mean a number of things. I know, and he tells us what it means in verse 33. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. This is really the Old Testament version of missional living. It's no different than what God has told us to do in the New Testament. To make God known. That's the task. Make Jesus known. That's what He's talking about here. That a kingdom is coming that will be far better than the kingdom of today. Make people, help them to know the person and the work of Jesus. I've already referenced the T. I mean, I loved yesterday, I was in here for about five minutes, dropping kids off and picking kids up and shuffling some things around. And I walked through this room and I was like, man, I don't know half the people in this room. I love that. But it's got to be more than just inviting women to a tea once a year. Don't you want more than that? I mean, praise God for that, but let's press further into that. That's what he means by taking action. We put our hope in God's kingdom. Loved one, put your hope in God's kingdom. And with that, flip over to chapter 12. As we move away from the mountain, so to speak, here, looking at this second feature, second prominent feature, although very much tied to this first feature. I just wrote this down that we put our hope in the resurrection. We put our hope in the resurrection. Now, let me, let me read uh, to you here the first four verses of Daniel chapter 12. Says at that time shall arise Michael. I love that guy's name. Uh, the great prince who has charge of your people. <laughs> Just like first. It took you a minute, right? You were like, oh yeah, okay. I see where he's going with that. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Such as never been and such has never good grief. Such has never has been since there was an I can't read. <laughs> this is rough but at that time I'm just going to skip it here we go second part of verse 1 but at that time your people shall be delivered everyone whose name shall be found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We put our hope in the resurrection. And you you get to chapter 12, and and, and it seems like uh, there's a pretty seismic shift that's happened here. Not just in terms of we're talking about something different. But it seems like we find ourselves in a different period of time. In fact, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times. The word time shows up in verse 1. And we find ourselves saying, what time is he referring to? And what I would argue is unlike most of Daniel... It would seem that chapter 12 moves us not beyond just the the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, not even to the first advent of Jesus. I would argue that chapter 12 is pushing us to the second coming of Jesus. And I think there's a couple things in the text that make it really, really clear. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, the end of verse 1, he says, Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Written in what book? Well, the book of life, right? Someone said it, right? The book of life. We see talked about in Philippians 4, as Paul's talking about some of the different believers there and some of the issues like, hey, you know, all your names are written in the book of life. But most notably, we know about the book of life from Revelation chapter 21. It comes at the return of Christ. And so not only do we see that, certainly future leaning in verse 2, he's talking about the resurrection. But it's not the resurrection of Jesus He's talking about the resurrection of humanity. Look what he says. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen the resurrection of all humanity taking place, so this certainly is something that's still to come. It seems to have an end-of-time view here for Daniel chapter 12. We put our hope in the resurrection. A couple things with respect to this. I'll make note of this first of all that we hope in God's deliverance. We hope in God's deliverance from trouble. Trouble is the word that Daniel uses in verse one and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has such as never has been since. There was a nation till that time. There's this time of trouble. And we know that there's still a time of trouble. Because we live under the effects of the fall. Right? Like we're not freed from the burdens of the fall. You know how you're getting old? You wake up injured. That happened like this morning. I've just got this knot in my neck. I literally did nothing and I woke up injured. I'm like, great. I'm old. Like, there's just no way to d- define it. I mean, when you wake up injured, you're old. And this is part of how we know that we're still under some of the effects of the fall. A day's coming, well, you, you'll wake up and you'll never be injured. Some of you young people are like, what's wrong with you old people? It's going to happen to you too, all right? But we're still under this. But a day's coming. Mm, a day's coming where the people of God will be delivered and rescued from this trouble. Amen? Mm. And see, this, this trouble, this conflict, this struggle, it's It's temporal. It's not for all of eternity. I mean, thank God that this is not, hey, the next 10 million years, it's just going to get worse every morning. No, no, it's temporal. See, the brokenness that we see, the brokenness that we live in, the brokenness that we experience, we're going to be rescued from that. Right, this is the hope that we have. This is, this is the gospel playing out. This is what God does is he rescues and delivers his people, but not just from waking up injured, but from sin and in, in its totality it's the most dramatic rescue story in all of human history see because you and i should have been destined for wrath that's what we deserved because of our sin it's what god should have justly given to us if god was totally fair he would destine us to wrath and yet here's what paul tells us in 1st Thessalonians 5 for god has not destined us for wrath but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. We just finished the book of Exodus, which is this beautiful picture foretelling what Jesus will do for us and that God delivers His people from sin and bondage and rescues them unto relationship with Him. That picture is pointing ahead to what Jesus will do and has done for you and I. that He rescues us. He delivers us from sin and its devastating effects. Notice also this, verse 2 through 4. So not only do we hope in God's deliverance from trouble, but we hope in God's resurrecting to new life. This is really how we hope in. This is the means or the substance that we hope in. Here's what he says in verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. I want you to make note of a few things here. First of all, notice that this is for all people. Do you notice that? All people are going to be resurrected. But this hardly implies, in fact, it's very clearly uh, the opposite of any form of universal salvation. So it's not saying all people are going to be resurrected and all people are going to have everlasting life and, and live in the fullness and the presence and the glory of Jesus. In fact, he makes it very, very clear. Some are going to be resurrected to that reality and some are going to be resurrected to a far different reality. To shame and everlasting contempt. We might not like that, might not want that, but we cannot argue that that is not clearly in the text. In fact, if you read this, if you go read the end of Matthew 25, I mean, they read almost identically to one another. And so we're all going to be resurrected, but to, to very different destinations. And loved ones, I, I would just suggest to you that we have to understand the fullness of the gospel. To understand the fullness of the gospel. We have to understand that the, part of the good news is that we've been delivered from something that's bad. That we've been delivered from the effects of, of sin and the effects of our rebellion and the fall. And yet, if, if all of us at some point... And maybe even some of you here today right now might be clueless to the true peril and the true danger in front of you. So don't miss this. Don't miss how dire our situation is. Because some of us, we we, we treat eternal realities as if they don't exist. And and much like an antelope or a gazelle prancing about on the savannah thinking he doesn't have a care in the world, completely, completely oblivious to the lion hiding in the bushes a few feet away. It's what some of us are like with respect to eternity. And yet the peril is made unmistakably clear here in Daniel chapter 12. Make note of two things specifically. First of all, it's eternal. Did you notice that the eternality of this is attached not only to those who live, but to those who will be under contempt? We love the everlasting life part, and rightfully so. But there is a component that there's everlasting contempt for all of eternity. Damnation. Wrath. That's what he's telling us here. There's an eternality on both sides of this. Make note of this also that this resurrecting is going to lead to life or death. There's no third option. There's not kind of life or sort of death. It's life or it's death. And you might say, well, he doesn't talk about death here. No, I'm borrowing that from Matthew 25. You're going to be found with Christ or you're going to be alienated from Christ. And church... I love you far too much to be anything but honest about this. So listen to me when I say this. Everlasting life belongs only to the people of God. It belongs only to the people of God. Friend, if you're sitting here this morning... And you can't look to a point in time in your life where you have turned from sin, you've repented of sin, and you've turned towards Christ, and you've placed your faith and your trust in Him and in Him alone to reconcile you, to make you right with God, and to bring you back. If that has not happened in your life, you there's no hope for you right now. You are staring at everlasting contempt. That is what the Bible is teaching us. You say all you want about what you think or your your, your belief or your, what God has said, the all authoritative supreme being of all has said, if you are not submitted, surrender to me. If you don't have faith in Christ, there is no hope in this. It's everlasting contempt. Now, all of us, all of us, all of us at some point were in that place. And so the way to remedy that is for you to do what I just described. It's to turn from sin, to repent of your sin, to surrender yourself to Jesus, to place your trust solely in him to make you right with God. To own the fact that in and of yourself you could never be good enough to tip the scales to put yourself into God's favor. But thank God, thank God that he said, well, I know that, which is why I sent my son. And the way to remedy all of this, to move from a place of everlasting contempt to a place of everlasting life is to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. And if you're here today and you have not done that, I would not walk out of this room without doing that. At the end of the service, folks will be up front, be willing to pray. You can grab them. You can come grab me, grab the person sitting next to you. And say, hey, uh, we've we got to get this right. In fact, even in this moment, you could just quietly, between yourself and the Lord, say, Jesus, um, I know, I know that I need you. Help me, forgive me, and I'm surrendered to you. See, in one sense, it leads to death. But for believers, and maybe for someone who's been a believer for five seconds... I don't want us to miss the beauty and the glory of this either, because for us, the resurrection's everything. Like, do, do you understand that? You you don't have the gospel if you don't have the resurrection. If Jesus wasn't raised, as, as we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen, we got no hope. Of all people, most to be pitied, wasted your life if Jesus is still in the tomb. But he's not in the tomb, is he? Right? So we're not wasting our life. The resurrection is our greatest hope. I was reading or listening to a, a pastor and an author talk about a time when he was in seminary and he was they were given the assignment of writing a paper on the gospel. And so it was just a, two or three page response, what, you know, what is the gospel, explain the gospel. And so uh, to hear him talk about his paper was pretty comical because he said, honestly, this is just one of the best papers that was ever written. And, and, and I just thought to myself, wow, my professor is going to be so blessed to get to read this. And I think he might have even said, I, they might frame it. They might, it was just so good, right? He's just embellishing how great it was and whatnot. And so he turns it in and, and very, very confident in this and shows up to class uh, the next week and uh, gets his paper. What's on the top of his paper? It's an F. Always in red ink, too. I don't know why that is, but it's always in red. And so he's kind of shocked and horrified, and I can't believe it. So he flips to the back to see what the professor had wrote, and he said he just wrote one line. He said, you forgot the resurrection. There's no gospel. He's like, yeah, I'll never forget the resurrection again. I'll never make that mistake again. As many people have said throughout history, if Jesus is raised from the dead, nothing else matters, right? But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, nothing else matters. See, it's because of the resurrection that we have hope, right? Because Christ has been raised, we have hope that he will raise us too to new life. It means something that he's able to raise himself, what confidence do you have in a dead guy telling you that he can raise you from the dead? It's like those faith healers. Have you seen some of those charlatans? Right, trying to take people's money. saw one recently where their guy talking about healing a blind woman and he's wearing glasses. And I just thought, bro, man, you need, you need to pray for yourself. Like, I mean, it's, you're exposed in this moment. That's what it's like for a dead guy to tell you he can raise you from the dead. But Jesus isn't dead, is he? And so in this, there's immense hope. And when we realize this, it should radically change how we live. Death has nothing on you. It cannot hold you. How freeing is that? Man, if we could grab that and grip and understand the depths of this. like, What does Satan come at you with when he can't bring death to you? This, this, this is the wonder of Philippians 1, where Paul says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, I'm going to kill you. That is fantastic. I get, I get to go and be in the presence of the Lord. Okay, well, okay. Uh, I'm going to let you live wonderful, fruitful labor and ministry for me. Don't you get it? We win either way. That's the glory of the resurrection. Changes everything. We hope. In the resurrection. Here's the final thing. Think at verses 5 through uh, 13. And just briefly touching on this third feature. I just put this down that we put our hope in God's rest. And so in verse 5, the vision is actually, the, the vision ends in verse 4. In um, verse 5, Daniel's back at the Tigris and he's kind of scratching his head going, What just happened? Two other guys show up and they go, Well, okay, how long is this going to happen? And the messenger gives one of the most ambiguous answers out there. A time, times, and half a time. Thanks, That's really helpful. And so, look, I love this response from Daniel. Verse 8, here's what Daniel says. I heard, but I did not understand. He's like, uh, yeah, I heard the words that you said. Okay, true confessions. How many people struggled in math? Right? Come on, raise your hands. So, like, when you're in Algebra 2... And, and you're like, I, there's numbers and letters, and I don't understand. And you're like, could you explain that again? And the teacher just, like, whips it out. And some of you rocket scientists, you guys make me sick. Because you're like, this stuff's all easy for you. But they, wick, they, they just whip that out, and you're like, yeah, I heard everything you said, but I have no idea what it means. That's Daniel. And look at what he Actually, I love this. He, he tries to backdoor the messenger. He says, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Like, I'm going to ask again. And look at the response. Verse 9, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. He's like, no, not for you to know. I know you don't understand, and you're not going to understand, and I'm not going to tell you. It's not for you. And he goes on, he says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. And those who are wise shall understand. And he goes on and talks about some other things that are probably confusing for us. Verse 13, and he says it again, but go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. We put our hope in God's rest. And I think what's fascinating, one of the fascinating things about the the end of Daniel is the messenger has no concern in helping Daniel to understand how long this is going to be. But he has great concern for helping Daniel and the people of God to prepare for this. And So how ought we to prepare? Two things. Here's the first, is to pursue holiness. It's like, hey, this isn't for you. But let me tell you what is for you. To be purified, to be made white, to be refined. The preparation is about knowing the timing. It's not about knowing the chronology. It's not about figuring out when this is going to happen. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ. God's not interested in what you know. Did you hear that? Because he knows how little you and I actually know. And there'll never be a point in time in your life where you're going to impress God with your knowledge. Okay, like that's just not ne- like here, Here's what's here's what's never going to happen. Hey, God, did you know? No, I didn't. <laughs> here's what's always going to happen. Hey, God, did you know? Yep. Well, did you know? Yep. Hey, you're not even letting me finish yet because I already know what you're going to say and I know it. And I know everything that you have thought. I know everything you will thought. And I know a ton of things that you'll never be able to even think about. You won't impress him with your knowledge. It's part of what he's telling Dan- Daniel. This isn't for you. You don't need to know this. What you do need to know is that you're to pursue me in holiness and righteousness. Now, loved ones, I'll I'll tell you, sometimes, sometimes we use our knowledge to hide, to shield, or to keep ourselves from pursuing holiness and righteousness. In fact, in in the American church, we're very guilty of this because we love knowledge. Knowledge isn't bad, but here's what we do. We nerd out and we geek out on all kinds of theology and doctrine, or in in this case, eschatology or whatever it is. And I've got all these facts and all these figures and all these things I know. And all the while, God's saying, yeah, I'm after your heart, loved one. Yes, I want you to learn and I want you to grow and I want you to be understand. I'm not saying don't pursue those things. But we let those become shields that we hide behind. And because I know all these things about theology... But my heart is hard, or it's calloused, or it's proud, or it's rebellious. And then we're equally guilty because we're like, man, that guy knows so much. Yeah, but if you spent five minutes with him? He's a jerk. Seriously. And God doesn't go, wow, I'm so impressed he knows so much. Yeah, we're going to work on the whole conduct thing. God's like, that's repulsive. Over and over and over again, God's lambasting the people of Israel in the Old Testament around this. Right, we pursue holiness. We prepare by pursuing holiness. We do this by loving God, by walking in holy conduct, by asking God to conform us to his image. And when we fail, which we inevitably will, we keep asking him for that. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we are quick to extend forgiveness and, and, and to receive forgiveness. And we repent and we do that over and over and over again. That's what it is to prepare for the second coming of Christ. And then secondly, look at the end of the book, verse 13. I just wrote this down that we labor for our rest. We labor for our rest. I mean, he tells Daniel for the second time to go his way. Go your way. But look at what he says till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. And so part of what he's saying is hey, listen, man, there's going to come a point in time where you're going to have rest. But until then, go do the things that God has given you to do. Go do the work that God's put in front of you. Go be faithful to what Christ has for you. And then at the end, you're going to rest. And so, loved ones, maybe as a form of encouragement, maybe as a form of challenge in your tiredness and your weariness, go labor for your rest. Not in your own strength. Obviously in the strength and the fullness of Christ. But you labor for your rest knowing that a day is coming where complete rest is going to take place. And so we labor for our rest. Now next week, next week, we'll take the entirety of the book of Daniel we'll, and we'll just kind of spend the, the, the entirety of our time looking at it in totality and do a review and we'll do a, a text in time at the end of the service, which should be a trip given that it's the book of Daniel. But um, for this week, as we close chapter 11 and 12, let me just do so by asking you four questions. So here they are. Number one, what is it that you're hoping in today? I mean, it's where we started. And if your answer to the first question was emphatically and honestly, Jesus and Jesus Christ alone, then praise God, hopefully that hasn't changed. But if that wasn't your answer, hopefully we've moved a little bit closer to that. Maybe another way of asking this is what kingdom are you building or investing in? Is your hope in this world or the next? Is your hope in your strength or Christ? Are you building your kingdom or his? What is it that you're hoping in today? Number two, are there ways in my life that I need to reshape my view of the future and eternity? Are there ways in my life that I need to reshape my view of the future and eternity? Maybe I'm too fixated on the here and now. Maybe I'm just disconnected between the two. Maybe I'm more concerned about the present but don't really care about eternity. Maybe I'm living as if eternity doesn't really exist. That would be a tragedy. Are there ways in my life that I need to reshape my view of the future and eternity? Number three, what is a tangible step that I can take today? To have eternity in view of my daily life. So what's one thing? What's one thing you walk out of here today and you begin to cultivate, you begin to practice, you begin to implement in your life that's going to help to cultivate a perspective and a view of eternity? Maybe it's a commitment to prayer in a particular area. Maybe it's more intentional about sharing the gospel with someone. Maybe you're going to, sit, maybe you're going to be more hospitable. Uh, maybe you're going to rethink your finances. I don't know, but God does. And I trust that he's speaking to you in this moment. Finally, this. God, would you help me to blank? I'm confident the spirit has something for everyone. Which is why I left it blank. Because he's going to do far better work than I could ever dream or imagine. God, would you help me to blank? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. God, that, that in you there's a future kingdom. God, if we're honest, there's actually a present and future kingdom. But in the future, in, in the fullness, in the consummation of your kingdom that we have to hope in. And God, thank you for this great book in Daniel that has shown us the futility of worldly kingdoms and the immense hope that we have in your kingdom. God, we pray that you would help us to hope in the resurrection. God, if there are men or women in this room that that have never trusted in you, that don't know you, uh, God, that the, the resurrection is not a source of hope for them right now because they haven't put their faith or their trust in you, God, would this be the moment that that changes? By the prompting of your spirit, would you lead them into repentance? And loved one, if that's you, we in this moment in this quiet that you, between yourself and the Lord, would just say, "God, I know that I'm a sinner. God, I know that I need you, and I need Jesus to make me right. God, would you take control of my life? I surrender myself to you, and I'm going to live for you. God, we pray. We pray that you would be moving and working in that. And then, God, we thank you for the rest, the rest that is coming. But, God, in our current weariness, in our current fatigue and tiredness, would you help us to persevere? Would you help us to keep going? God, not in our own strength. That's a waste. God, we want to keep keep going in your strength. And so help us in that. And until that day, help us to labor for you. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.